Good morning, I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant struggle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm also joined by Nick Johnson, co-author of Modern Monopolies with me. And the first topic for today is ride-sharing platforms can now be profitable. I feel like everyone was saying that that could never happen, and all of these businesses were doomed, particularly Uber. Earlier this week, Lyft's co-founders uh, had, had a interview with the Wall Street Journal, and they said that they think Lyft could turn a profit as soon as 2021, which was a year earlier than uh, essentially what Wall Street had expected. And that basically sent Lyft and Uber stock uh, over 5%, 5 to 10% up as a result of that. And um, I think this had been the biggest gripe that everyone had had about these ride-sharing businesses. Shortly thereafter, then Dara, the CEO of Uber, um, there was an, a write-up and, and seemingly somewhat of a kind of follow-up interview with him um, where it was interesting. He was saying, <coughs> if I rated myself based on accounting of the last quarter, uh, I wouldn't be doing so well. But I live in the real world, he said. And uh, I ran Expedia for 12 years. It was a profitable company. Da, 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 da. This is what's really interesting to me. Uber's take rate or commission earned, he says, in rides was over 20%. And a great business can be built with a 20% take rate. What do you make of this, Nick? 20% take rate. Uh, it's probably actually much higher than what they were taking at an Expedia um, from the hotel industry. And uh, we've seen other industries like the food industry, um, Grubhub uh, taking much less than 20%, um, but still being a public company with a, with a profitable business underneath it. Um, do you think 20% is the floor to have a successful marketplace business? Um, or is he just saying we actually have a very strong business because it's at least 20%? Uh, I mean, I would say it's the latter. Alibaba for years didn't take a take, right? Still builds a great marketplace business, uh, obviously. Uh, and I think 20% is a very healthy margin for a marketplace to take. What it says is you have strong network effects. You've got pretty solid lock-in. Uh, you know, there's only going to be one or two of these big companies, which is exactly what you've seen. If you can take 20%, typically when you see uh, lower take rates, it means one of two things. One, you have weak network effects and can't actually capture that market. And there might be uh, you know, some issues going on there. And then two would be you have issues with platform leakage. And you're concerned that if you do take a big take rate, people will take the, tra the transactions offline, which was the case with Alibaba and its marketplaces originally. Uh, so I, I think if I'm Uber and I have a 20% take rate, yeah, I think the challenge for them is uh, their marketplace isn't just digital services. You know, there's physical services, people actually delivering rides. So there's costs associated with building and maintaining that network and fixed costs like insurance. So the unit economics are different than, you know, even a product marketplace being a services marketplace. But I think 20% uh, for a services marketplace is quite healthy. And I expect that over time, the margins are going to improve. I think where they lose a lot of money right now is really in those emerging markets mm. where uh, costs are high. They're spending gobs of money on user acquisition. They've got issues with fraud and have had that historically in emerging markets. So a lot of that money isn't necessarily actually helping. And costs of rides are lower, so they're just not going to make as much profit there in the short term. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, they, they, they do talk about India in this article as well for Uber and it being right. a huge 
a growth driver for them. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, that just goes back to the platform conglomerate status of Uber versus Lyft uh, and why long-term I'm just more bullish on Uber than, than Lyft. Doesn't mean Lyft won't be profitable or won't have a successful business, but I think we're going to see uh, Uber flex its muscle over the coming years. Uh, and we've already seen it do that um, and highlighted on the show with things like Uber Pets, um, which I think is going to be awesome. And um, these kinds of things. I think it's a good point, though. Service marketplaces might needing a higher take rate than product marketplaces, especially when the service marketplace has a strong kind of physical delivery component where things can go wrong and the marketplace needs to make people whole or have kind of slippage in there uh, or lossage factored into just the operations of the business. Where if it's a product marketplace, it's a seemingly a little bit more um, straightforward from a fulfillment standpoint. Uh, you know, also, if you look at like these home service marketplaces like Handy and IAC right. did the roll up with Handy and Angie's List, it's a very tough business. Mm -hmm. And you're really needing to, what is the service you're really selling? Basically time. And when things get messed up, you can't just refund someone's time. It's a very different kind of economic model, um, even more so than, than a product marketplace. Or at least I can get you the product Maybe there's an inconvenience because it didn't get to you on time, but or maybe the product is damaged. I can still right. make I, you. I whole. think the benefit that a, a Uber has over something like a Handy though is their one-off transactions, super commoditized. So like if I'm shopping for a home cleaner, I might use Handy, but if I find someone I really like, why not just contract with that one yes. person? So th there's it's this much, much, much less commoditized of a right. service, and you know there's a much more of a human relationship component to that. Mm -hmm. Whereas just getting from A to B. Uh, you know, unless you're an executive at a big company and have a private driver uh, and security risks and that kind of thing, you don't really care. You're just getting in an Uber going from A to B. So, yep. So, um, so let's look at Chinese B2B marketplaces. We've spoken a lot on the show about B2B distribution in the United States. It's a six to eight trillion dollar industry. It's the largest industry in the United States. Healthcare is three trillion. Consumer retail is two and a half trillion. B2B distribution is at least six. I think it's probably closer to $8 trillion. It is huge. It basically powers the entire economy in pretty much every single vertical of the uh, of, of our um, GDP and, and, and the United States economy. And what we are seeing is there are now four large uh, tech monopoly players actively in B2B. From Amazon with in Amazon the, Business. In the U.S. In the U.S. Uh, Alibaba is... In the U.S. for B2B, Walmart and eBay all have billion dollar businesses growing uh, at, you know, at ranging from, say, 20 percent a month to at least, say, 30 or 40 percent a quarter. Um, lots of growth across all of these businesses. Now, relatively, I think Amazon businesses is, is probably the biggest one. We estimate they're probably around, say, 15 billion dollars in GMV. Uh, they were at $10 billion in GMV roughly a year ago. So you add that all up and no one's probably, collectively, they're all less than $50 billion, but they're growing quickly. And the market, the marketplace model they're deploying is that B2B distribution holistically is very fragmented. There's a lack of pricing transparency. Um, it's a very inefficient purchasing process. And basically the suppliers and distributors, they make their money off of that lack of transparency. 
And so the marketplaces rip that out. They centralize things. They bring pricing transparency to the market. They force third-party sellers to compete against each other uh, on centralized product catalogs and product listings. And all, all what that does is it provides basically the best prices, the widest product selection, uh, and the kind of easiest purchasing process to the customer. And what we all know is that when the customer is happy and the customer wins, uh, then you win. And in that case, that means that the platform model is definitely winning uh, in B2B distribution. And there's only, uh, uh, there's only upside to, to these businesses growing. What we wanted to look at, though, is this story has already played itself out in China. I would say the kind of more nascent industry in the U.S. with marketplaces and B2B, um, we've already seen, I'd say, relatively mature marketplaces in China do this already. We've seen China leapfrog the U.S. in other platform markets like healthcare marketplaces, payments, uh, payments financial services. Um, and so B2B is, is definitely one of these areas. And so uh, we're going to be publishing more research and landscapes on this, but we wanted to kind of share a hot take with you on some of the research that we have. So we identified uh, about 30 companies here, all of some sizable amount of money that they have raised. And that means that, you know, the business is now no longer a baby. They've gotten some level of product market fit. And so um, let's dive into this here. You know, you can see Alibaba is at the top here with $9 billion in funding. Um, but take them out. And basically the rest of these marketplaces, these are all pure play mark B2B marketplaces. These aren't part of some large tech monopoly like Alibaba, Tencent's also in, in B2B in China, but um, uh, JD is in beta, B2B J in China. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. JD. Um, but if you look at this number two one here, uh, MyKai, right? It's a B2B marketplace in, in the ag industry in China. It's raised $800 million. That's not Chinese dollars. That's US dollars. And so basically what we've seen is that in pretty much every vertical of B2B distribution in China, there is at least one very dominant vertical specific player that has raised probably at least $50 million or possibly more um, in these different verticals. So we're going to dig in a little bit more to that. But basically, I think one of the big takeaways is that this has already happened in China. It's right. now going into Southeast Asia. This is, a, this is a glimpse into the future where you've seen area where you don't have big industrial distributors and B2B distributors that have been around for a hundred years like we have in the US and the West, where you have these family companies that really grew up as the company the economy industrialized and became big national and in some cases international companies. China is a much more recent growth story. A lot of these companies haven't been around for a hundred years. You have a lot of these smaller distributors that have been around for a few decades. And uh what really happened there is that as this sprung up basically alongside the internet, rather than it being, you know, big, big distributors going online, it was tons of fragmentation, marketplaces popping up and solving that uh, and really bringing transparency to the market, particularly in an area where there's lots of concerns about, you know, fraud, uh, you know, product quality and that kind of stuff uh, and bringing that transparency and selection to the market that just didn't have it. So they mm -hmm. really leapfrogged mm -hmm. uh, ahead. And just like we've seen in payments and in healthcare, where all this stuff is now starting to come back into Western markets. If you've been to China and seen some of this stuff, it's it's a glimpse into the future, and they've proved that it works. And it's a matter of time before it happens here. And you know, these, some of the incumbents may resist, and it may take longer, uh, but it's definitely going to continue to happen, and it's yep. not going away. Absolutely. Let me just highlight some. Let's just go down the list a little bit, right? 
So Maikai, Ag. The next number two and three spots are, and by the way, I'm going to butcher every single one of these, so don't judge me. Um, we Eel, okay, $430 million. Steel and Metal B2B Distribution. Interestingly enough, Zhao Gong, $380 million, also in Steel and right. Metal B2B. So the- Steel was one of the kind of leading edge industries for B2B in China, one of the ones that happened first in a big way. And there were uh, a lot of these, and they basically over time consolidated into these two big dominant players uh, that basically have the majority of the market. Do you think that's because the Chinese government was really pushing you know, their kind of expansion with, uh, with mills and well, um, I think having you know, a, as, a, uh, as an industry focus for the country. To put it lightly, healthy construction and uh, you know, heavy materials markets in China, which in some cases were very subsidized by the government. Absolutely, right. that helps. Yeah. Uh, which is probably why in China this steel accelerate was mm-hmm. accelerated and somewhat of a leading edge. But you've also seen, you know, there are huge marketplaces in chemicals, industrial distribution, and these other yeah, places that have popped so up. So number here. four is uh, Jun Kun Hong, $374 million. That's industrial products. Right. Then it's... So uh, that, that's the, if you put it in... Western context, that's like a Granger. Yep. Uh, and those kind MRO, of MRO, maintenance, repair, products, operations. Right. And they say basically a huge marketplace in China selling MRO products. Yep. Um, Yao Shibong is in the B2B pharmaceutical trading space. Very interesting space. Love that. Um, $225 million. KK Group, online to offline imported products. That seems kind of like a import export trading business. Like Cross border uh, B2B commerce. Um, Baibu. Not to be confused with Baidu, Baibu is for fabric and, and cloth trading, yep. $156 million. Basically textiles in China. Mm-hmm. We have another ag marketplace here, Mai Hualong, $150 million. Then another fabric trading. Um, then, we're, then we're looking at machine trading and machine parts trading. Uh, that looks about like $50 million. That's pretty interesting. Um then we're then, then there's more ag. Then there's food, seafood yep. trading, food B two B food distribution. Right. So ag is more like props, commodity grain type and products yes, and grain. Crops. Whereas food distribution is more like food service. So like a what, Cisco, a US what a Cisco foods. does, right? Versus like an Archer, Daniels, Midland, or a a, a bungee, uh, right. so um, Cargill. Right. It's a it's a different industry. They both obviously deal with agricultural products, but mm-hmm. there's, you know, fresh produce versus kind of commodity crops and those kinds of things. It makes sense because I'd say probably the two largest U.S. B2B marketplaces are also in the ag industry, which right. is Farmers Business Network and Indigo. Right. Um, that are that have each of them, I think, are worth a few billion dollars uh, in valuation and have raised a few hundred million dollars at least um, mm-hmm. for each of them, each separately for both the, both of those businesses. So that there's, you can definitely see the the parallel there between ag in China and, and I'd say probably ag in the U S as, as the most mature B2B marketplace space here. Then we have plastic trading. We have um, kind of like uh, bulk purchase wholesale. It looks like electrical. Um, oh, auto parts. Yep. There, auto parts there are a is a few great of those, one. Uh, strong, big auto parts marketplaces in China. Uh, rice and fruits. So, kind of a little bit more niche on, on the food side. Beauty. Um, so, uh, right. beauty and cosmetic products. Um, really, probably catering to 
the um you know say all of like the spas or the salons that are that are purchasing which is stores and those kinds of things it's wholesale well yeah wholesale which is a big business for the l'oreal's of the world is supplying all the spas and salons and um so it makes sense why you see that there so um this is just kind of the first teaser stay tuned we're going to be publishing some more articles on this uh and letting you dig much deeper into all this information but um nick i think you framed it really it's a glimpse into the future there's a lot that can be learned. It's not going to line up exactly the same in the U.S., but I think in terms of seeing the meta trends and how this is basically an inevitable future state of what's going to happen in the U.S. and then eventually Europe, um, this absolutely helps to to confirm that and provide more light on it. So more to come on that. Let's switch gears a little bit to um, some... So Plat, we've got 70 public platform companies in the Plat ETF. Uh, we had done some analysis on, I think maybe like Q2 of 2019 and, and what portion of the uh, platform stocks are in the S&P 500 and how much do those platform stocks contribute to the S&P 500 earnings. And so we decided to extend that research and, <laughs> and look at this uh, for an entire year. So from Q3 of 2019, uh, going back four quarters, you know, what does that look like? And basically what we saw, let me zoom on in here. Um, you've got 21 companies out of the 70 companies in Plat. You've got 21 uh, that are in the S&P 500 and 15%, a little over 15% of the annual earnings of the aggregate S&P 500 companies, which there are 500 companies, which means you have 21 of the 500 a little under five percent basically a little under five percent which is contributing over 15 percent uh, of the s p 500 earnings now here's what's really interesting because some of the some of the platform companies in the s p 500 are kind of older right like a mastercard a visa nasdaq a nasdaq um cme group cme cboe amex um and uh ice the intercontinental exchange um so they you know typically when you have these the older more mature platforms that that have have dominated space they're able to they might be less a little less in growth mode and more in profit maximization mode when you see the younger platforms that are still up and coming and they're really more of a growth play certainly all the large cap tech stocks are pretty much always evaluated on their growth aspirations as opposed to their earnings, um, but you still see an outsized portion of the earnings coming from a Microsoft, a Facebook, an Apple, uh, a Google, a little bit of an Amazon here. But I think what's also interesting is when you look at a market access, which I don't think many people know about, which is the dominant, I think they have 85% of the volume in bond trading. Secondary bond trades, right. And they're a newer company, so that they really scaled, and we've talked about them a few times about their history on this show, but they really scaled after the financial crisis in 2008, when basically a lot of the stuff moved away from banks. Uh, and there was a need for an intermediary to come in and basically build a platform. And that's exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. And they're uh, doing quite well, still growing, but also making pretty good money. Mm-hmm. Making, yeah, making, making very good money, but they just kind of like Amazon in its earlier years, they would just reinvest all those earnings back right. into the business because they say there's so much growth here oh, and I'm only going to now consolidate, continue to consolidate, put up more barriers and really put 
as much of a stranglehold as I can on the 85% of market share that I already have, because now there's more competition coming into the space. And so they're only going to double down on that. And as we've seen, the platform model basically uh, is inherently a winner take all model. That's the name of our show. And um, they're very smart and well ahead of all the other competition and very small actual penetration compared to the overall amount of loans that are still being traded on the secondary market. They have 85% of that kind of digital space, but the amount of offline trading that's still happening still uh, vastly outweighs that of, of, of the digital trading. Um, so I think that's interesting to look at. The other thing to, to take into account is um, so the median, median year founded of all of the, um, all of the 70 companies in Plaid is two is the year 2000 median year of their IPO is 2011. And so basically what you're seeing is to be in the S and P 500, there's rules. Um, and so basically I think you're going to see more platforms be added to the S and P 500 over the next handful of years. Right. I mean, you've had what, at least a dozen big platform companies go public in the last 12 months. Yep. And then probably a few more to come. I know Airbnb is coming out next year uh, yep. from what they've said. So uh, you need to be profitable. Be I think you need a couple of years of earnings. You know, there's right. a few rules to be inducted into it. But I think as you start to see just more platforms go public, and I think you're seeing platforms also go public at a later stage and all these things, but you're seeing more platforms go public. They have more of a track record as a public entity. Then they can be inducted into the S&P 500. That kind of dovetails almost very perfectly with, them saying, okay, let's make a lot of money and, uh, and re let's really put, you know, turn on the profit engine uh, side right. of the you business. You also have, uh, in some cases, companies like Expedia, which originally was more of a linear kind of reseller shifting toward the platform model, which is why they're in plat. And that's been a, a story for them over you know, a number of years that's been in transition. So it's interesting to see you also have companies there that are shifting from linear to platform. I expect we're going to see a lot more of that in the S&P 500 in the next five years. Mm -hmm. So um, this was interesting. So uh, Snap released their earnings this week, beat on sales, um, but you know the, the outlook for growth wasn't as strong, so stock sank. Again, majority of these platform companies, it's really about how much growth do you have and what did I see in your growth for this most recent quarter and what does the outlook look like? So when the, when the outlook doesn't look as rosy, then the stock goes down, even if say they miss on earnings, for example, um, which is basically exactly what we just saw with Amazon. So anyway, um, in this article, Snap Spiegel said on a conference call, quote, we definitely consider them a friend referring to TikTok, noting that TikTok uses Snap's app development tools and advertises on Snapchat. And I just don't buy this one. Like, I don't see how, how TikTok. They're competitors. <laughs> right. They both have big content platforms. They compete for similar demographic audiences, particularly in the U.S. It's all these short videos. Right. And messages. And if I'm Snap, the one thing I would say is, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they're not Facebook. Right. Uh, but they are still a competitor. It's a better certainly. competitor than Facebook. Right. Still a competitor nonetheless. At least this competitor is paying you money. <laughs> and Snap clearly needs the money because right. I really wouldn't want to take their money, to be honest, and, and have them advertise to all of my users. So right. just so go TikTok and TikTok is basically saying, hey, come on, TikTok. 
TikTok on Snapchat. Right. Uh, I'm Snapchat. That's a little weird. Yeah. Why would I allow that? I mean, one of the lessons we learned, it's like 101 is, you know, platform wars. I mean, uh, that, that would be uh, hinting at the next one, letting Mixer advertise on Twitch. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a great that's a great comparison. I mean, I think what Mixer's done another great example of platform wars here. Mixer is Microsoft's Twitch competitor. And Twitch is their live streaming platform that Amazon bought for a billion dollars a few years ago. It was a great play. Um, Twitch basically created these megastars, right? One of the examples of when a when a when a maker platform hits critical mass is that you are able to create celebrities and out of nothing, right? If you think about a PewDiePie on YouTube, um, a Dan Bilgerian on Instagram, you know, all of these people had no following. Uh, prior to the content platform reaching that critical mass and and them being an early adopter and and you know making good content and and all that kind of stuff. So Ninja left uh, to go to Mixer maybe a month or two ago. Twitch was not happy about it. Right. Instead of advertising for Mixer, they actually put porn advertising on Ninja's page. That that really threw salt on the wound. That may have been an error, but yes, it did not look good. Didn't look good. Um, who knows what I, how, so basically what, what it was is ninja's page was still there even though he wasn't using it right. anymore wasn't and using they were just it putting up other streams and things yes. to advertise because people would still go they're there leeching off of his uh his following right um even though he's trying to get the page deleted and taken down shroud is another big streamer on twitch big streamer uh big following former professional cs gamer basically that's counter-strike yes uh, and now plays a bunch of other stuff and huge following on Twitch. No longer, apparently, right? Yeah, because he's making moves. Um, at least he's not taking his talents to uh, to Mixer or something like that. Um, but uh, now, so what is this an example of, Nick? This is a strategy. We've seen platforms do this. We've written about it in the book. What do we call this? We call this basically a marquee strategy. I'm trying, if I'm Mixer, I'm still pretty early stage. I'm going against a big incumbent, which, uh, how do I get more consumer demand? I need to have, and particularly if I'm a maker platform, uh, you have this one-to-many dynamic where one user that can attract a lot of other users is really powerful. So that's basically a huge celebrity that's a draw that's going to bring hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people to come join my platform. So I go out, I get really high-value users. For Twitter early on, this was you know VCs. And then eventually, you know, celebrities and politicians, because if they're on the platform, then other people want to hear what they have to say. Uh, that's obviously played out in a big way for Twitter with Trump. Uh, so it's, it's this strategy of going after uh, users and saying not all users are created equal, particularly on the producer side. But sometimes this also happens on the consumer side. What are those real power users that are going to draw that other side of that network and create much stronger network effects? How can I go out and get them? And in this case, you know, is what they did with Ninja. I assume they're, you know, contracting him and paying him and saying, "Hey, just come, uh, help us seed our network." And you know, you're kind of acting as a a linear content producer, saying, "We're going to basically hire you to come stream on our network," uh, rather than you know people joining organically and building that because you really have to overcome that chicken and egg problem. Really, mm-hmm. this is a a way to do it. Microsoft has used this marquee strategy before. They did it with Xbox basically went out and said, all right, we're going to commit $500 million to paying game developers and promoting their games if you come make stuff for Xbox back when Xbox was new and competing with Nintendo and PlayStation. Uh, and they're they're doing it again with Mixer, it looks like. I mean, Microsoft's great at platforms, right? If we just look, they're actually the most valuable tech company or, or company period in the world. 
Who would have seen that public a couple company. Of years, public company. Yeah. Who would have seen that a couple of years ago? Bigger than Amazon, bigger than Google uh, and Apple have reinvented themselves in the sense of really new dominant platforms like Azure being the number two to AWS and a number of other really great platform plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really understand ecosystems very well. Clearly, they're very aggressively going after Twitch and not playing any games about it. Mixer was basically a non-factor um, six months ago. Right. You know, it was there. It was on the Xbox, but they're investing. You would in never think way. to and use the it. Other interesting thing about why Microsoft might be doing so well from a stock point of view is they probably have the least regulatory risk having mm. already kind of been through the ringer uh, yeah. on that front of any of the big platform companies, whereas Amazon, uh, Google, Facebook, uh, all are all kind of in the crosshairs on that yeah. front. Now it's interesting. I mean, take this with a grain of salt. Ninja's manager and wife says that, that he decided to leave Twitch because of the company's inability to work with them on building out the Ninja brand. She goes, money was the last thing on our mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's like they don't even know what went on behind the scenes and how hard we tried to make that deal work and then how amazing Microsoft was for us. Yeah, I'm taking this one with a salt bay amount of salt, right? I mean, <laughs> this is not, money is definitely a big factor why these right. guys are going over. And this, there's big money at play here. It has not been released how much money. I think it is eight figures money. I don't think it's nine figures money. It's eight figures money. Certainly for Ninja, Maybe also for um, Shroud. F- for Shroud, I think, yes, there's other stuff that I'm sure Microsoft was saying like, hey, we have, I mean, we are Microsoft. I mean, but Amazon's Xbox Amazon, and, but right. still in gaming. Yeah. I think Microsoft just has a much more dominant with the Xbox and a number of other things that they with just Microsoft. Right. So uh, what they're do, done with Ninja you know, Windows. Say, hey, you're going to be the first one to stream some of our you know, exclusive games. And we're going to basically use you to help release it. We're going to help propel you and put you at the forefront. And we're going to do all these other things that's going to just help you build your brand and all this kind of stuff. They're probably hooking them up with other um, like advertisers and sponsors to get that promotion side. Oh, and some money too. So the the interesting thing about this, if you talk about the marquee strategy is why there might be some truth to Ninja's complaints about Twitch. If I'm Twitch, I don't want to have my producers have too much power. Yes. So I want to promote Ninja. Yes. I want him to be successful. Yes. But I don't want him to be too successful. So I feel like I'm dependent on Ninja. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's Ninja is Twitch. And then he starts to get more leverage on you. Uh, if I'm Twitch, I want Ninja to be successful. Sure. But I also want all these other guys to be successful. Whereas if I'm Mixer, I'm a very different place. I'm the challenger. I haven't really overcome this chicken and egg problem. I want those big names. And I want to make them as big as possible because mm-hmm. that's going to be the only way I'm going to be successful. Right. Yep, exactly. Uh, and we've seen YouTube do this where, you know, a lot of a lot of creators on YouTube will say, hey, you know, once I had a few million subscribers, it my organic growth pretty much completely salt. Right. YouTube has made a big effort to promote newer content creators because the challenge for them is one, if I get big enough, often people take their audiences off YouTube and go elsewhere and have their own kind of proprietary subscription channels because they don't want to pay YouTube's take rate when I have a big enough brand. And two, to retain and attract new creators, I've got to find a way to make it not just a game where you know, the more, people with the most followers, the only ones that can continue to big follow, build following. So you know, their algorithm has moved more toward favoring uh, you know, newer or trying to surface fresher content, uh, which is why some of that happens. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Twitch has similar thoughts and similar challenges they think about as a content platform. Yeah, absolutely. So um, next week, we've got a, we've got a big earning, earnings week. Uh, ahead of us, we've got um, 
Google next week, MasterCard next week, Facebook, uh, Lyft. I think Uber might be sure. I mean, it might be the the week after. Um, number of uh, number of platforms releasing earnings. Apple, if I I might have mentioned them. Um, so lots of activity next week. We'll be covering it all for you. Uh, have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week.